Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. You're, you're listening to Green Left. This episode of Green Left is a recording of an online forum that took place on the 26th of April and was organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance, titled COVID-19, Bernie Sanders and the Future of Socialism. It was a, a Q&A with a long-time socialist um, activist Paul LeBlanc. Um, Paul LeBlanc is a long-time revolutionary socialist and historian based in the United States. He has been a member of the Socialist Workers' Party and um, the International Socialist Organization, among other groups in the United States. And he is notable as the author of Lenin and the Revolutionary Party, as well as books about Rosa Luxemburg. The Q&A addressed topics including the character of the COVID-19 disaster under late capitalism, the Bernie Sanders campaign, and the future of socialism in the United States. I hope listeners will enjoy the program. Uh, this forum has been hosted by Green Left and the Socialist Alliance, and in particular initiated by the Brisbane branch of Socialist Alliance. Um, it should be uh, live streamed. I'm hoping that that can be confirmed for me by somebody else. As I said, um, Paul LeBlanc is our guest speaker. He is noted as a, as a long-time revolutionary socialist from the United States. Uh, he's been a member of a number of uh, socialist organisations, and I think I highlighted in the description the, the US Socialist Workers' Party, which um, uh, many of us have long-distance links to, and also the International Socialist Organisation, which until recently was um, uh, one of the most prominent revolutionary socialist groups in the US. Uh, of course, there's now a lot of interesting things happening in US politics uh, with the whole rise of the Democratic Socialists of America and a whole lot of other things, the Bernie Sanders campaign. I'm sure we're going to hear about those things from Paul. Um, I just want to explain at the beginning how we're going to run this meeting. Uh, first of all, it's going to be a Q&A, so we're going to run it as a Q&A with Paul LeBlanc. Uh, but the first half, approximately, I'm going to ask about four questions to sort of set the scene. And then after that, we're going to open up the, uh, the, the Q&A to everybody who wants to um, participate uh, or anyone's got a question. So when that happens, um, if you can type your questions into the chat box uh, and then we can either, I can read out your question if you prefer that or else um, or else you can uh, ask your question directly, whichever, you're, whichever you prefer. Until then, we just ask everybody please to keep themselves muted uh, so that it doesn't interrupt the, um, the flow of the, the presentation. And um, the other thing I'd like to just ask everybody to do right now as this uh, video is being live streamed on Facebook as we speak. Um, if everybody could please go and um, uh, just go now, find that live stream on the Facebook, please share it or, you know, uh, give it a thumbs up, you know, just in any way to sort of boost the, uh, the audience for that live stream. Uh, that would be, that would be wonderful. Okay, so we're going to get underway with the question and answer. And the first place I want to start is with the, with the coronavirus crisis, which has just imposed itself on political and social life in a dramatic way, I mean, both in Australia and in the United States, and um, as in other countries around the world. Uh, and look, I know Australia is not the, the worst case, but it still has had a big impact on, on, our, on our life here. And, and the, the United States is just a particularly shocking example, um, especially since it's the richest imperialist country in the world. Uh, so I haven't, I should have checked most recently. I think it's, well, it's into the 900,000 cases in the United States. Uh, it'll be, you know, a million cases within days, um, if not tomorrow. Uh, and that's more than four times the, the, the number that Spain has got. And Spain is a country with the next highest number of cases. 
And yeah, the, uh, again, almost 60,000 deaths, um, double the double the numbers uh, from Italy, which is the next highest number of deaths. So it's a it's a shocking and dramatic um, uh, situation for, as I said, for the richest imperialist country. And there's no immediate end in sight, um, at least on a global level. Now, I think in general, it's fair to say that right wing governments, uh, such as that of Donald Trump in the United States, but also Boris Johnson in Britain, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Erdogan in Turkey, among others, have handled this crisis particularly poorly. However, it's not simply a case of ideology. I mean, viruses obviously don't care about that. However, this crisis, a health crisis, starkly shows the conflict between capitalist profiteering and human need. So I'd like to ask you, Paul, could you please begin by just talking about the coronavirus current crisis in the United States? Can you describe what appears from the outside at least to be a very shocking situation? And further, can you elaborate on the political implications of what you see? Is it fair to claim that the mishandling of the crisis by the Trump regime is more than just the mumbling of an incompetent administration? Um, that's, you know, that is, is it a reflection of the capitalist system in crisis per se? Over to you, Paul. Okay, well, it's uh, a pleasure to be with uh, friends and comrades. Uh, and uh, I could spend all of my time uh, going through various details uh, uh, on the coronavirus here, the situation, but I'm just going to pick uh, some uh, bits of information that may give some sense of it. Uh, and then I want to get into the political question that you've uh, posed, Alex. Um, this is a crisis that includes issues of public health, uh, of social inequality, uh, plus economic and political breakdown. Um, and it's moved very, very quickly since it uh, uh, came upon us in February. Um, in an interview that I gave 10 days ago to friends and comrades in, uh, in Italy, I noted that from the end of February to mid April, uh, uh, more than 605,000 people had gotten COVID-19 in this country, with almost 27,000 dying. Um, in just the past 10 days, infection has climbed from 605,000 to 676,000, and deaths from 27,000 to 35,000. Uh, the situation is not the same everywhere. So New York City, that's the epicenter. Things are worse there. Uh, in the past 10 days, uh, the infections have risen from 220,000 to 282,000. Uh, deaths have risen from almost 15,000 to 16,600. I live in Pittsburgh, and we are fortunate here. So... Uh, in Pittsburgh, over the past 10 days, it's risen from 900 to 25 infections to 1,088 infections. The deaths have doubled from 38 to 74. The statistics generally are still rising at rates that seem nowhere near leveling off. And the situation is worse than these official statistics uh, uh, indicate. Uh, absent from the statistics are cases among the homeless, those who are too poor to have health insurance, undocumented immigrants, and others who don't get medical care or go to hospitals. There's another factor uh, that uh, we need to look at, and that's race and ethnicity. So infection and death range 
uh, roughly from 10 to 40 percent higher among blacks and Hispanics. Uh, and I could go through various cities. Some cities it's worse than others, uh, but that is part of the reality. And then this also relates uh, uh, to uh, uh, the devastating economic downturn. Um, and according to the New York Times, the jobless rate is higher than at any point since the Great Depression. At this point, it's around 15 percent. And the Times adds that it is rising at a speed unmatched in American history. Ten days ago, the unemployment uh, uh, numbers hit uh, 22 million people. And now, 10 days later, it's 26 million people. And then there's the issue of health care, because for most uh, working people in the United States, their health care is related to their employment. They get their uh, uh, health care through uh, various arrangements that have been made with insurance companies through uh, their job. And uh, that's different, of course, from many countries around the world where there's a national health care plan. Um, so if you don't have a job or your job doesn't uh, provide health care, then you're in a bad fix. And that was the situation for 27.5 million people in the United States. Um, they were without health care. And with the growing unemployment, that's dramatically going to increase that number. So these are some of the uh, uh, aspects of the crisis that are hitting the United States. And that's just uh, slightly scratching the surface. Um, the political implications uh, are what I want to focus on now. And um, you know, of course, that we have a president named Trump. And uh, there are a number of books written about him. Uh, and three just came out and were reviewed in the Times Literary Supplement. And the title of that review was Godzilla in the White House. Um, and some people have argued that is a terrible slander of Godzilla. Critics have a variety of complaints about the president, that he's a bigot, a bully, a liar. He's arrogant, ignorant, irresponsible, egocentric, phony, short-sighted, slow to take uh, the pandemic seriously, incompetent, things like that. According to the Washington Post, uh, they are able to document 16,000 lies that he has told since he took office. That someone like Trump can be president of the United States is a sign of a much larger, deeper political crisis. Uh, and at the same time, it's accelerating already existing uh, destructive trends uh, in the United States. Um, there was a deeper economic crisis that's inherent in capitalism, and it's not just in the United States, which helped to generate neoliberal policies, uh, which people have been feeling around the world, but certainly in the United States. Among other things, these have gutted environmental protections, have gutted health care, have gutted public services, have smashed against the labor movement and dismantled much of it and so on. Stuff wasn't done by Trump. This was happening before Trump came to office. Uh, and in addition to that, 
there is a capital accumulation process which has been generating climate change and environmental degradation. This has been documented by a number of analysts, uh, Mike Davis, Ian Angus, and, and many others. And this has been going on for decades. But now it is being accelerated thanks to Trump's policies. So I would argue that the uh, problem is systemic, not just flowing from a very bad apple, although we can focus on that very bad apple and have a bunch of laughs and be horrified and so forth and so on. But it's not just Trump. It's something that's larger and that has uh, allowed Trump to come into uh, uh, to being as, as the president of the United States. I could go on, but uh, let's uh, let's shift yeah, this no, a little bit. That's great. Yeah, no, I'd like to. I would like to move it to the to turn to the awards of Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, but before we do that, I just want to actually make an announcement to everybody who's watching this that uh, becoming a Green F supporter is actually one of the best ways you can uh, support our work. So if you aren't already a Green F supporter, um, uh, you know, please consider doing so. And the, and the link we should get into the into the description for the video in the Zoom chat, if um if possible. And um, one other thing you can do, even if you don't, not to pay a single cent, even just liking this video on Facebook in the live stream would be um you know, would help to get their word out. But as I said, turning to the Bernie Sanders campaign, obviously many people around the world, and no doubt in the United States as well, uh, have seen the Bernie Sanders campaign as a huge inspiration. I mean, it surely is significant that you know, someone who describes himself as a democratic socialist and regardless of whatever discussion you might have about his limitations, but someone describing themselves as a socialist could come so close to winning the presidential nomination for one of the two major capitalist parties in the US. Um, indeed, prior to the South Carolina primary, it seemed that Sanders was well placed to potentially win the nomination. Um, now, we've seen the story since then. The establishment closed ranks around Joe Biden. It was a well-orchestrated campaign on their part. Um, they want to consolidate their forces around what I think any objective assessment has got to conclude is a very weak establishment candidate. Um, and that seems to pull the rug out from underneath the Sanders campaign. So can you please comment on this? Can you comment on Bernie Sanders' political response to this establishment move? Uh, do you think that essentially this was an unwinnable fight, like in the circumstances there was, there was nothing that an insurgent left-wing campaign could do? Or do you think Bernie Sanders made some political mistakes that potentially could have resulted in a different outcome? Sure. Um, one thing I would argue is that it was not in the cards that he could win, that he could win in the Democratic Party, which is an irredeemably capitalist party uh, dominated by a very powerful, well-to-do capitalist elite, the liberal wing of the capitalist class in the United States and its, uh, its uh, uh, people who do its bidding. Um, but he did have a powerful impact and it was possible. He showed that it is possible to have a powerful impact. The fact that he couldn't win, uh, caused some people to, uh, uh, on the left to argue that he was a phony, that he was just trying to lead people astray. I think the, uh, reality is more complex and more interesting than that. Uh, one thing we need to do is look at the history of the guy and his context, because it's not just Bernie Sanders coming down from the heavens or something like that. Uh, he comes out of, just as Trump comes out of a certain context, a certain reality, the same is true of Sanders. Um, from his youth, he identified as a socialist and was part of the Young People's Socialist 
um, and uh, also as an independent, independent of the Democratic and Republican parties. He was a very moderate socialist, but was uh, far more radical than your average Democratic Party politician, and he was not formally part of the Democratic Party. Uh, he ran for public office as an independent and one uh, and an open socialist and became the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, and then a congressman and then a senator. So uh, and uh, was un uh, pretty much unique in the kind of political profile that he projected. Um, now, the fact is also uh, it's also the fact that he uh, worked very closely with Democratic Party politicians, with the Democratic Party caucus, with the uh, Congressional Democratic uh, group and so on, but, uh, but with a difference. Now his context, it's, it's interesting to look at the context. In some ways you could go back to the 1930s. Now, he was born in 1941, but in the 1930s, there was a radical uh, working class upsurge and subculture that he identified with as he was growing up. Uh, he was uh, a 1960s radical, part of the 1960s radicalization. Um, he uh, endured, as many of us did, had to live through the so-called Reagan revolution, uh, the neoliberal onslaught uh, that uh, undercut uh, social programs and pushed back the labor movement and eliminated more and more and more of the gains that had been won in the 1930s. Um, and he uh, observed, although he was caucusing with the Democrats, he observed the Democratic Party shifting more and more to the right, adapting to this neoliberal trend. Another important aspect of the context is that there was a radicalization beginning to develop of, uh, that became evident uh, with the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, the the, the uh, erosion of living conditions, working conditions, quality of life for more and more and more people was uh, in part generating a radicalization that could be seen not only in the Occupy Wall Street movement, but in the Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, resurgence of the feminist movement culminating in a, a million woman march in 2017. Um, there was uh, a... Um, uh, an environmental movement that was building uh, in response in part to uh, what uh, the science community was pointing out, which is that we have 30, maybe 30 years uh, to turn things around in order to preserve a liv livable environment for, uh, for human beings on this planet. And then there was a, uh, a proliferation of labor insurgencies of various kinds, a wave of teacher strikes, before that, a labor occupation of uh, uh, the capital of Wisconsin, Madison, and various other things that were had. So there was a general radicalization taking place with increasing actions and uh, 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 that um, Sanders responded to. And in responding to it, put forward an alternative to uh, politics as usual in the Demo that was provided by the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and won large numbers of people to his uh, uh, perspective uh, as he was running for uh, the Democratic Party nomination uh, as an open socialist, 
2016 and then more recently this last time around. Now, it's interesting to see what he was doing. Um, he was, first of all, continuing to identify himself as a socialist. His definition of socialism was, from the standpoint of many of us, uh, utterly inadequate, making references to Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal that contained many good things, but it, it wasn't socialist. Uh, referring to uh, the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and so forth. I've been there. I've talked to socialists, and they assure me, nope, it's not socialist, it's capitalism. But with a welfare state that was fought for and won by the labor movements in those countries, uh, that has been very beneficial to the working class. Um, and so he was arguing for similar kinds of things here thundering against the billionaires and the tyranny of the billionaires who dominate our economy, who dominate political life, uh, pushing for a $15 uh, an hour minimum wage and the Green New Deal and uh, uh, health care for all and a number of other things. And who should pay for this? The billionaires should pay for it, he said. And he identified all of this with the word socialism. And that had a powerful impact. It tilted popular consciousness so that a very high percentage of people, uh, 40 some percent, uh, 42 or 43 percent of uh, people in the United States, 51 percent of young people uh, ages 19 to uh, 29 uh, or 18 to 29, 57 percent of the Democratic Party uh, uh, identify positively now with socialism and the idea of socialism and some of the ideas related to socialism have become part of the national discourse. So this is the kind of contribution that he made. His limitations I've already noted and uh, uh, there are more than what I've noted. For example, he is working and has been working in and with the Democratic Party. He's not formally a Democrat, he's an independent, but he has adapted and compromised in all kinds of ways. Uh, he has taken some good positions on foreign policy, but to a very large extent, he is adapting, has adapted to the foreign policy of the billionaires. Um, and uh, uh, he has projected an electoral challenge that has been very powerful, in my opinion, that has been good in multiple ways but that is not clearly, except rhetorically, not clearly tied in with mass social struggles uh, that will be necessary uh, uh, if genuine socialism is to be brought about. So these are some of the limitations. Um, but all of this was too radical, absolutely too radical for the Democratic Party elite. And um, it did close uh, uh, ranks around Joe Biden um, and uh, um, in, it seems to me that Sanders won much in what he did. There have been gains that I've talked about in terms of consciousness uh, and uh, the political discourse in the United States. Um, and yet he was up against uh, a, a, an incredibly powerful and wealthy elite that this time around, 2016, he surprised them. But this time around, they were ready for him. Um, Biden is not a very good candidate, in my opinion. Um, and uh, so a number of people were running to be the candidate, to be the centrist or 
uh, mild liberal uh, uh, candidate of the Democratic Party running against Sanders. And because they were divided, he that made it easier for him to win certain elections. Um, once the elite was able to corral these various contenders uh, behind Biden, uh, that changed the, uh, the changed the math, that changed the dynamic. And he still had lots of support, but uh, he wasn't able to uh, do what he had projected to do. And his uh, strengths and uh, limitations in terms of his base, he had young people and has young people still uh, supporting him. And this is the future in, in uh, majority, uh, in majorities, in uh, huge percentages, young people support uh, Sanders, as well as some of the more oppressed folks. Uh, and the young people and many of the more oppressed folks don't vote in in the same percentages as other sections of the party. So he was focusing a lot of energy uh, on winning uh, uh, the hearts and minds of these people, and that was very positive. But in terms of the votes, I don't I don't think this is a weakness of his campaign. It's a strength of his campaign. But he wasn't going to win the Democratic Party uh, nomination with the votes that were actually uh, he was able to turn out. Um, these various factors uh, were then um, added to by the coronavirus factor. Sanders was marvelous at mobilizing masses of people in rallies to hear inspiring speeches that he would give. Uh, and this became impossible. The dynamic of the Sanders campaign was powerfully undercut, not only by the things that I've just been talking about, but then by the coronavirus. So these are things that, for the most part, he didn't have control over. And I would not say, oh, well, he blew it in terms of these things. But there were two other problems that I think uh, did uh, undermine him. Um, in addition to the fact that the Democratic Party uh, uh, pro-capitalist elite was not going to let it happen, that he would uh, he would become president. Uh, two Achilles heels, one for each foot. Uh, one is he made a commitment. Uh, and if he wanted to be effective in the way that he was trying to be effective, effective in a certain sense, he had to make this uh, uh, clear that he was not going to break from the Democratic Party. He was going to support whoever uh, won the nomination from the Democratic Party. And it was quite possibly not going to be him. Uh, even though there was much enthusiasm and much hoping that it might be him, it was not going to be him. And the question was, with how much leverage could he have within the Democratic Party? Uh, but he was not going to win it. And he was going to end up supporting. And it became clear when you watched the... Uh, debate between him and Joe Biden, um, that Sanders was pulling his punches um, because this was the guy he was going to end up supporting. And that's, a, that's a, quite a contradiction. That's one Achilles heel. The other Achilles heel is this. Assume for a moment that somehow, somehow he could win. He could win the nomination and then win the election he would be up against the pro-capitalist elite of the Democratic and Republican parties, the mass media, and so much more. 
And he did not have the kind of um, uh, ideological strength and organizational strength among his supporters to win. Even if he won the election, he couldn't win. He was in that because our movement, the socialist movement, the working class movement in this country is not yet strong enough. These were the two Achilles heels, in my opinion. Um, and could he have done things differently? Yes. Could he have been more effective if he had done things differently? Maybe on some things, but it, I don't think it would have resulted in his victory. Um, on the other hand, the fact that he was running in this kind of context helped to advance the cause of socialism in a number of ways. There's confusion and limitations in his orientation, but the political scene is quite different now than it was before he was running uh, in these campaigns. All right. I'm, I'm sure there's actually probably more things that could be teased out um, out of some of those points, but I did want to move on and people that can perhaps come back to that in the, in the further Q&A at the end. After withdrawing from the race, Bernie has gone on to formally endorse Joe Biden. Um, that is unsurprising. I mean, he always says, as you mentioned, that he would endorse whichever candidate was nominated by the Democrats. Um, it certainly has been a devastating development for many of his supporters. So can you comment on that aspect of things as well? And the debate around that stance. I mean, obviously, there are different opinions on the left as to as to what Bernie should have done and also what the left in, our, in general now should do. So can you comment on that? And also, can you comment on the broader fact that the Democratic establishment has chosen to rally around Biden, uh, given that he is such a weak and compromised candidate? I mean, it's sort of, you know, uh, I mean, that, that in itself also seems quite astounding. So can you comment on that? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll say as much as I can on it. Um, one of the uh, uh, questions about Biden, there were a number of people who agreed Biden is not that strong a candidate. Uh, and there were a number of other candidates who thought maybe they could do better than Biden um, in defeating Sanders, first of all, um, because he was too radical for the Democratic Party. So you needed a pro-capitalist liberal or centrist um, and stronger than Biden, my God, of course. Um, but there wasn't a consensus, which one? And the efforts to develop a stronger candidate than Biden on the part of various uh, people in the Democratic Party resulted in a fragmentation that uh, undercut Biden and that uh, made it more possible for Sanders to have uh, impact. Um, I think it's part of the crisis of the Democratic Party and of U.S. politics that Biden is the is the guy uh, who's running as the Democratic Party uh, candidate. We'll see how he does. He did better in the uh, debate with Sanders than many of us anticipated. But for him to uh, do better in the long haul is another question. And he's weak in multiple ways. Um, and Sanders has endorsed him. And this is part of Sanders's contradiction that I've talked about before. The debate on the left goes different ways. Um, there are some on the left um, as uh, relatively small groups who have the uh, aspects of the analysis that I've already uh, shared with you, 
that he couldn't win, that this was not going to be a serious alternative to the capitalist system. Um, and uh, they rejected him uh, and uh, are now saying, see, we told you. Um, so there, there's some of that. There are some people who see Trump, who agree with Sanders, seeing Trump as such a, a horrific threat to the quality of life in the United States of America that uh, they will support, they will vote for, and they will campaign for anyone who is running against, you know, in the Democratic Party in order to remove Trump. Um, there are some people who will not campaign for Biden, who were Sanders supporters, because uh, he uh, Biden represents what they were fighting against. He is a candidate of the billionaires. He support and has been a longtime supporter of various policies that have made this country worse and made it possible for uh, Trump to arise. Um, he's against socialism. He's against uh, health care for all. He is for a phony version of the Green New Deal. Um, and why would you campaign for him? There's nothing to campaign for except that he's not Trump. Um, there are uh, some people who uh, are supporting the Green Party candidate. That's what I'm doing at this point. Uh, Howie Hawkins, who's an eco-socialist and saying a lot of the right things and putting forward things that we can campaign for. The same kinds of things that uh, uh, caused some people to support Sanders, the Green New Deal, health care for all, $15 minimum wage and student debt and so forth and so on. Um, so that's the debate on the left. And some people on the left are spending a lot of time and energy hacking away at each other, which tends to happen on the left. There are others who see the election as something that will be over soon. And whoever is in office, we need to build a socialist movement. Uh, and particularly, there is an opportunity, more of an opportunity than there ever was before. There are many millions of people who've been drawn to the idea of socialism and to various radical reforms that go absolutely against neoliberal policies that have dominated not only the Republican Party, but also uh, have been adapted to by the Democratic Party. Um, and so uh, a number of people are uh, especially focusing on um, how do we build that movement? Uh, how do we uh, build that movement after the election? regardless of disagreements. And there's uh, quite a willingness to discuss the disagreements uh, on the part of such people, but uh, not to uh, focus on them to the exclusion of uh, what are the next steps in building a movement that can actually bring about change in this country. Okay. And so I, I guess finally, I'd, I'd like to ask you about that exact question. What are the, what do you think are the perspectives for the socialist movement in the United States from this point? I mean, there's obviously a number of different roads forward and you began to touch on that just now, but can you please comment further on that? Yeah. One thing that I think is crucial is to push back, uh, uh, against posturing and all kinds of, you know, uh, declarations about what must happen and so forth and so on. If there's no power to make it happen, if there isn't, I mean, I think that Sanders opened tremendous opportunities to build a mass socialist movement, but he hasn't built a mass socialist movement. That doesn't exist yet. Um, and uh, 
so there's much work to do. And I think there needs to be a realization of that. And at the same time, uh, a realization of the fact that there is a deepening radicalization in our country, uh, that uh, uh, class conflict is deepening in our country. If we fail to build a viable left-wing alternative that makes sense to people, then um, let's say Biden wins the election. Um, he's going to deliver uh, a pathetic reality to people, or he's going to help continue and be identified with an increasingly pathetic reality. After Trump, there will be forces that are very powerful, increasingly powerful, more right-wing, more vicious than Trump, more organized than Trump. If we do not have a left-wing alternative, things could go in that direction. So we must build that alternative with the actual people that there are, helping to deepen and spread socialist consciousness, but also uh, deepen and spread struggles. Right now, in the uh, uh, this period of coronavirus, there is ca class conflict that's taking place. Uh, sanitation workers, grocery store workers, warehouse and delivery workers, postal workers, and others who are on the front line of the crisis have been facing a number of issues. One is a lack of health and safety procedures, a lack of protective gear, overwork from forced overtime and understaffing, the lack of paid sick leave and also hazard pay. Healthcare workers are also raising concerns regarding the safety and the well-being of their patients in poorly funded facilities. All of this is rising to the surface and there are actions that various workers have been taking. Uh, there are some uh, very moderate trade union leaders who've uh, come out recently with a statement. We want to join with progressive uh, business people to, you know, we're all in this together and so forth. And recently there was a an open letter from uh, a left wing current in the labor movement made up of uh, officers of unions and locals and so forth, arguing that, no, uh, anything that's positive uh, that uh, we're getting from employers has come through struggle. We need to have class struggle, not class snuggle, is what they're saying. And there's a, a, a number of things happening, uh, circulating petitions, holding news conferences, leafleting, picketing, some demonstrations, and wildcat strikes. Also, on there was uh, a few days ago an online conference of a, a publication called Labor Notes, gathering various radical labor activists together to talk about what they're doing. Uh, over a thousand, there were over a thousand participants in that. So that, um, and out of this has become, there's come a consciousness and some victories. So this is one area that is developing that needs to be developed, an area of struggle. The demand for health care for all makes more sense now than ever. It is so clear that we need that. Um, health care is a matter of right. The Green New Deal, which combines uh, uh, environmental uh, struggles to uh, preserve the environment, uh, which will be uh, uh, irreparably damaged in two decades if we don't do something, rebuilding the economy in a way that will address that while providing full employment uh, and decent quality of life and quality of work for all workers. That's the Green New Deal. That's the real Green New Deal, not the phony one. A struggle for that makes sense, uh, as well as um, 
taking other aspects of the Sanders campaign platform that made sense to people, that drew people to his uh, campaign, and continuing to fight for those, continuing to fight for all of those and who should pay, the billionaires should pay, helping to build struggles and socialist consciousness around these kinds of things among the large number of people who were drawn to the Sanders campaign in the first place. But the Sanders campaign uh, is much bigger than Sanders. And if Sanders, you know, is not in the picture anymore, well, that's a shame in some ways. But uh, the, the strength of Sanders was the masses of people who were responding to these kinds of ideas. And that's what we have to build as a uh, movement. I want to conclude by pointing out uh, two problems. Well, one problem, really. You could say it's the organization problem. One thing is we do not have a political party of our own, a mass socialist electoral party that will be tied in with these social struggles that I've been talking about. That is absent and that has to be developed and that can't be developed just because we issue a slogan or a manifesto. That is one thing that has to happen in order for us to make the kinds of gains that we need to uh, make. Um, and then we need a, an organization of socialist activists who will be working together to carry out this kind of work. Um, and it, that can easily, both of them can be easily become little groups, little protest groups, little sects. But there are ways, and we must find those ways, to make these better than that, more real, more effective. Um, so uh, building the socialist movement needs to focus on that kind of stuff as well. Um, discussing differences, discussing different, uh, uh, different perspectives, testing them out, engaging in struggle where we're in agreement, learning the lessons from those struggles. Um, that's what we've got to be doing in the next uh, five to 10 years in order to have a possibility of bringing about the changes that uh, need to be brought about. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.